0: Lord, would you come and anoint both the speaker and the hearers that we could glean something that would impress us about Jesus, lift us up and help us to adore him and see another side of his wondrous attributes and character and his love and grace and his work on our behalf, that we would just be enthralled by our Savior today. In Jesus' name, amen. I find it really interesting that when God in the Bible describes the creation of the universe, he does it in five words. He made the stars also. But when he wants to talk about this man named Joseph, he takes 13 chapters. Over one-fourth of the entire book of Genesis is devoted to the story of this one man. Now, why would he do that? Why would the Holy Spirit inspire 13 chapters on the story of the life of one man in the book of Genesis? Well, it's said of John Bunyan that he was Biblene. If you pricked him at any point in his body, he would bleed the Bible. He was Biblene. Well, Joseph is Christline. <laughs> you prick Joseph at any point and he bleeds Christ. In other words, whatever point of the story of Joseph you're reading, you're going to see another aspect of Jesus. We call people like that in the Old Testament types. They're pictures of Jesus. And we've seen a lot of other people so far in the book of Genesis as types, haven't we? We saw Adam as a type. Adam shows forth the headship of Christ. Abel shows forth the blood of Christ. Noah shows forth the salvation of Christ. Melchizedek shows forth the priesthood of Christ. Isaac shows forth the marriage of Christ. Joseph shows forth the sufferings and the glories of Christ. And so, what we're going to do is take the story of Joseph in two parts. Today is going to be Christ, the innocent sufferer, and then next week is going to be Christ, our exalted Lord. So, we're going to take His humiliation today, and then next Sunday we're going to look at His exaltation as Lord of the universe. And as we work our way through these three chapters, you'll notice we've got a long text today. We're going to dip. We're not going to treat every verse. We're going to dip into parts of these chapters to show the parallels between uh, Joseph and the Lord Jesus. And as we work our way through, we're going to see Joseph in three different settings. It's kind of like watching a movie, and the lead actor might have, maybe he's outdoors in the first scene, and then they show him Indoors at the kitchen table at another scene. And then he's down at his office on the third scene. So the same person in three different scenes. Well, Joseph is like that. In chapter 37, we see Joseph in his parents' house. In chapter 39, we see Joseph in Potiphar's house. In chapter 40, we see Joseph in the prison house. So we're going to look at those three areas and how Joseph exemplifies and exudes Jesus. And those three areas. So first of all, Joseph and his parents' house. And as we look at this, I want you to see first of all, Jacob's relationship to his son Joseph, and then his brother's relationship to their brother Joseph. So first of all, Jacob, and then the brothers. Joseph and his parents' house. If you look at verse 3, the Bible says, Now Israel, that's another name for Jacob, now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons, because he was the son of his old age. Jacob had had Joseph. He had parented Joseph when he was an old man. And in fact, Joseph was born as a union of Jacob with his beloved wife, Rachel, the favorite of his four wives. And as an old man, he, he had this child named Joseph. And he favored him. He loved him more than all the other brothers. It's interesting to me. that As you look at the parallel, the father loves the son. And Jesus loves to reiterate this fact. As uh, you go through the Gospels, in John 3.35, Jesus said, The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. There was a special, definite, Infinite love between the members of the Trinity. And that's only natural, isn't it? That God loves Himself supremely? Have you ever thought about that? Yes, God loves us, His people, but there is a supernatural, omnipotent, infinite, eternal love that the members of the Trinity share between themselves Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Jacob loved his son Joseph. The Father loves his son Jesus. This is my beloved Son, He said and whom I am well pleased. And not only that, but Jacob honored his son Joseph. Look at the next verse. It said that he made him a very colored tunic, and his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. So as an expression of Jacob's love for Joseph, he made him this very colored tunic. Now if you read this in various translations, you get it all different senses. Some call it a coat of many colors. The ESV calls it a robe of many colors. Sometimes it's called a robe with long sleeves. We're not exactly sure what the exact translation should be. But I think one thing is sure. This coat, whatever it was, was just an outward display of Jacob's favored love for Joseph. There is really only one reason I can think of why Jacob would give this interesting, many-colored, long-sleeved robe to his son. You see, in those days, they had what they called uh, the birthright. And if you had many sons, the father would give one of his sons the birthright. Usually it was the older son. And if you got the birthright, that meant you got a double portion of the father's inheritance. It also meant you became the leader of the clan. And you received the blessing of the father. It was a very important thing. By all rights, Esau should have had the birthright and the blessing over Jacob, but Jacob was able to weasel the birthright and the blessing away from his brothers. By all rights, Joseph's older brothers should have got, one of them should have got the birthright and the blessing. But I believe what we see here is Jacob showing that the birthright and the blessing are things that he had chosen to give to Joseph, his favored son, the one whom he loved among all his other Brother or sons and daughters. Do you know the Father has honored his son, Jesus Christ? It's not just Jacob that has honored Joseph, but God the Father has determined that he's going to honor Jesus. In fact, did you know that's what the whole work of redemption is about? The work of redemption is God's way of giving Jesus the preeminence, making him the firstborn among many brethren so that he would have the preeminence over all God's people everywhere. God loves to glorify Jesus. He loves to lift him up. He loves to honor him, just as Jacob did with Joseph, so our father does with Jesus Christ. And the third thing we see about Jacob is that he sent Joseph. He loved him, he honored him, and he sent him. Take a look with me down to verse 13. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. The father sent the son on A dangerous mission. This was a mission of about a 50-mile journey. It's going to take him two and a half, three days to get there. There are robbers. There are bandits. There are wild animals roaming the hills and the mountainside. So this is no easy task to go on a mission to a place 50 miles away by yourself. A dangerous mission. Jacob sent his son Joseph on. God the Father has sent his son on a dangerous mission. Now, Jacob sent Joseph on this mission to see about the welfare of Joseph's brothers. God sent Jesus on a mission, concerned about the welfare of Jesus' brethren. That's us. Those of us who love Christ. Those of us who at one time were lost and sinful and wayward. He has sent Jesus on a mission to redeem them. Jesus said, I came for this purpose, to seek and to save that which is lost. And you know, this would have been a dangerous area for Joseph's brothers to be in. Because if you've read Genesis chapter 34, do anybody remember the story about Dinah? Well, let me fill you in if you can't remember that story. Back in Genesis chapter 34, Joseph's sister Dinah had been raped by a man named Shechem. And Shechem was the prince over this village in Canaan called Shechem. So the city's called Shechem, and the prince in that city's called Shechem. And Shechem had raped Dinah. Now, he had this infatuation for her. In fact, the Bible says he loved her. He wanted to marry her. And he came to Joseph's brothers and to Jacob, and he said, I want to marry Dinah. And the brothers took Shechem aside, and they said, okay, under one condition, we'll let you marry our daughter. In fact, we'll intermarry with your people, and you can intermarry with our people on one condition. All of the, your men there in Shechem need to be circumcised. The foreskin needs to be removed. You have to undergo this surgery, a very painful, painful surgery that would incapacitate these men for probably a week or more. And so the men of Shechem thought about it, and they they talked amongst themselves, they counseled together, and they said, okay, that seems reasonable. We're going to get all of these people to intermarry with us. We're going to get all of their cattle and You know, Jacob's a very wealthy man. We're going to end up getting all that he owns. Let's go ahead and do it. So all the men were circumcised. And three days after their circumcision, Simeon and Levi came into that city with swords, and they killed every last man. They couldn't defend themselves. They were trying to recover from surgery. And if you've ever gone through a surgery, you know how painful it is. Sometimes you can't even get up. You just lie down in bed. Well, they just came in with swords, and ruthlessly and mercilessly wiped out all the men of Shechem. Now, in chapter 30, 34, verse 30, Jacob says, Oh, my sons, what have you done? You've made me odious in the sight of the men of or the Canaanites and the Perizzites. When they find out what you've done, they're going to come against me, and they're going to slaughter our entire family. Now, where was it that Jacob sent Joseph to look after the welfare of his brothers? Did you read it there? It's Shechem. It's the very same place that this slaughter had taken place. So Jacob's a little nervous. Jacob's concerned. My sons are all off in this city where they have wiped out an entire village and the people of that land are going to hear about it. And when they find out my sons are there, they're going to come and kill them all. And so he's nervous. He's he's apprehensive. He's concerned. And so that's why he sends Joseph on a mission to see about their welfare. Well, God the Father sent Jesus Christ on another mission to see about our welfare. And our welfare, we were in dire danger. We were in desperate need because of the fall. We had fallen from any hope of fellowship with God and everlasting life, and we were headed to eternal destruction. And Jesus came on an errand from His Father to reach us. Now, if you scroll down a little bit, I shouldn't say scroll, I have to scroll down a little bit. (laughs) Verse 19 No, it's not verse 19. It's verse 17. It says, Then the man said, They have moved from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Who is going to look for who here? Are the brothers looking for Joseph? No. Joseph is going on a mission to look for the brothers. Joseph goes and finds the brothers. Jesus said, In Luke chapter 15, that it's like a shepherd who loses one sheep and that shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes looking for that sheep and he looks and he looks over hill and dale and under scrub and bush until he finds that wayward sheep. He puts him on his neck and he brings him back to the 99. Some people talk about, well, you know, I found God in 1994. You know what? You really didn't find God because God was never lost. God found you. Jesus is the one that looks for us. We don't go looking for God. In fact, our heart is just too wicked and depraved to ever look for God. In fact, C.S. Lewis once said that for a sinner to look like God is kind of like a mouse looking for a cat. (laughs) Why would we go looking for God if we are sinful and condemned in the sight of God? We need the grace of God to draw and to call us. And that's what we see here in the life of Joseph. He went searching after these lost brethren, these endangered brothers of his so this is the relationship of Jacob to Joseph he loves him he honors him and he sends Joseph to them now look at the relationship of Joseph to his brothers the first thing we see in verse 4 is that they hated him his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms they hated him In fact, it's not stated once, verse 5, Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Or verse 8, Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Three times this is expressed to get the point across. These brothers hated Joseph. Do you know what Jesus said is the attitude of the world towards himself? He says, they hated me without a cause. And this is a really difficult point to get across to people. Because when you tell someone who's not a Christian, you know the Bible says that your attitude towards God and towards Jesus right now is that of hatred. They say, I don't hate Jesus. I love God. Well, you know what they love? They love their own image of God that they formed in their own mind they love that God they love a God that won't judge them they love a God that loves everybody and takes everybody to heaven they love a God that will never send anyone to hell they love a God that won't demand a person to repent of sin yeah sure they love that God but they don't love the God of the Bible and when Jesus came into the world and preached a strong message, he preached the truth from his Father, people hated him. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, it says that the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. And it doesn't subject itself to the law of God. It's not able to do so. There's a hatred. There's an animosity. In fact, the Bible says that lost people are enemies of God. They're not God's friends. They're enemies. I find it fascinating. In verse 4, they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. They could not speak to him on friendly terms. They were unable. There was an inability on the part of Joseph's brothers to speak to Joseph on friendly terms. Sometimes we talk about total inability. If you've ever studied theology, you may have come across this phrase, the total inability of man. And what we mean by that is that there is a complete inability of the sinner to come to Christ apart from the grace of God in drawing him. He's totally unable to do it because he's dead in sin. And sometimes we wonder about that and we're confused about that because we think, well, how could God judge people and hold them responsible for something that they're unable to do? That just doesn't seem right. You know... Could it be that God would actually hold people responsible and judge people for something they're unable to do? Well, if you make a distinction between man's natural ability and man's moral ability, you'll be able to understand this better. It'll make more sense. What kind of inability did these brothers have? Was it a natural inability or a moral inability? Well, let me explain the two. A natural inability is someone not having the natural faculties that they need to do something. For instance, if God said, Brian, I command you to fly, and I say, Well, I'd like to, Lord, but I don't have wings, would it be reasonable for God to judge and condemn me for not flying when he hadn't equipped me with wings? Well, no, that's a natural inability. What's a moral inability? That's the kind of inability we see here with these brothers. They saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Their inability to speak to Joseph on friendly terms was because of an inner hatred in their hearts. That's the kind of inability that sinners have towards God. It's moral. They could believe on Christ if their heart wanted to believe on Christ, but their wicked heart keeps them from doing it. It's kind of like a missionary that we once heard at Milpitas Bible Fellowship. His name was David Sitton. And he came, and he told us that when he he first went to Papua New Guinea, this guy was amazing. He went there, and he blazed... You know, through jungles, tearing down jungles, blazing a path through, till he finally found this tribe that had never heard the gospel, and he stayed with these tribe's people until the whole tribe was converted. It's an amazing, amazing story. But one of the things that they did that happened to him when he went to Papua New Guinea is that the tribe's people uh, asked him to share a meal with them, and what they were eating were these live grubs, these live worms squirreling around in the bottom of this little dish. And, you know, he was expected to eat whatever they ate. And he said, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. You know, I I wanted to try to fit in, but I just couldn't eat these live worms. Now, that was a moral inability. The inability didn't stem from the fact that he didn't have teeth, and he didn't have a mouth, and he couldn't chew, and he couldn't swallow. He had all the natural faculties he needed to eat the worms. But he didn't have the heart To eat the worms. Joseph's brothers could have spoken to him on friendly terms. They had mouths, vocal cords, lips. They had all of that. But they didn't have a heart that would speak to him on friendly terms. And that's the inability of the sinner. And that's why God is just to judge them. Because their inability stems from a wicked heart for which they are responsible. The wicked heart comes all the way back to Adam. Who gave this world that wicked heart. And so we are responsible and culpable before God. So these brothers hated Joseph. Secondly, they envied Joseph. Look at verse 11. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. They envied him. They were jealous of him. They saw that very colored tunic. They knew that the father loved Joseph more than all of them. And there was this envy. Similarly, in the life of Jesus Christ, it says that the religious leaders delivered Jesus up because of envy. Over in John chapter 11, verse 47, this is what the religious leaders were saying to each other. They said, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So what was the concern among the religious leaders? It was that the Romans were going to come and take away their place and their nation. What was their place? Well, they were the rulers. They had the say. They were able to dictate what happened and what didn't happen. They they ruled over the people And they saw that Jesus was becoming more and more popular by the common people. And they were concerned that all the people were going to go over to Jesus and leave them. And they were not going to have authority any longer. And so out of envy, out of jealousy of the way Jesus was becoming more and more popular, they plotted together to do away with him. Matthew twenty seven eighteen. Pilate knew that it was because of envy that they had handed over Jesus to him. So they hated Joseph. They envied Joseph. They also plotted against Joseph. Take a look at verse 18. When Joseph came to them, They saw Him from a distance, and before He came close to them, they plotted against Him to put Him to death. Does that cause some bells in your mind to go off? (laughs) Do you remember the times in the Gospels we were talking about plotting against Jesus? Matthew 26, verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. Over and over again, there were many times when they would put their heads together and say, we've got to get rid of this guy. We've got to kill him. And they would plot, make plans to put him to death. And then not only did they plot against Joseph, their brother, but they stripped him. Verse 23. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped him of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him. They stripped him. Don't you know that they were glad to get that tunic off of him? They hated that tunic because it was a symbol of Jacob's love for him over his love for all of them. And so they stripped him of that tunic, got rid of it, and in the life of Jesus, the scholars tell us, by all accounts, when Jesus was nailed to that cross, he was stripped of everything. His dignity, in fact, they sell us he was probably naked as he was lifted up on that cross to die. You know, we have the figures of Jesus with a little loincloth around him. Well, that's just for decency's sake. He was probably stark naked on the cross. He was stripped, just as Joseph was stripped. And then the next thing we see about Joseph is that they sold him. Verse 28. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They sold him. First of all, they put him in a pit, and they thought, we'll just let him starve to death. That's how we'll get rid of him. But then, off in the distance, they see this caravan coming. These uh, Midianite traders. And they thought to themselves, hey, we can at least make a little bit of money off this thing. Why, why let him die of starvation in the pit? Let's sell him. I mean, we'll get rid of him for good that way. He's going to become a slave of somebody down in Egypt. We'll never see him again. And we'll get some money too. Let's do it that way. doesn't it remind you of Judas, who, in, not for 20, but for 30 pieces of silver, sold Jesus Christ into the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees to get rid of him. So, Jacob loves, honors, and sends his son. The brothers hate, envy, plot, strip, and sell their brother into slavery. That's what we find when we look at Joseph in his parents' home. But now let's switch scenes and let's look at Joseph in Potiphar's home. You see, what took place is that once Joseph was sold into slavery, he went down to Egypt and there was an auction block. And you could come and you could actually make wagers and you could, uh, you could give your bid to buy an, a slave on that auction block. And Potiphar showed up. Potiphar was the captain of the bodyguard for Pharaoh. So he had a very important, responsible position. And he needed someone to oversee his home and the affairs of his home. He had to be gone away from him quite a bit turns out that he wasn't a very good judge of character because he married a woman that was just a complete rascal, as we're going to see. Underhanded, deviant. So anyway, Potiphar buys Joseph to be a slave, to look over the affairs of his household, and Joseph comes to live in Potiphar's house. And we see two things going on as Joseph lives in that home. The first one is that he resisted strong temptations. Go over to chapter 39. Take a look at verse 7. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. Nothing like the direct approach, right? (laughs) Lie with me. But he refused. And she said to his master's wife, or he said to his master's wife, "Behold, behold with me here My master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he's put all that he owns in my charge. There's no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Joseph was a man of integrity. He had learned something growing up in that household. Jacob had met God, and Jacob had taught his son something about the true and living God. And Joseph was a man of integrity. How could I do this great evil and not sin against Potiphar or you or myself, but against God himself? And she spoke to Joseph day after day. He did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. So these temptations kept coming at him, not once, but daily. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. So here we see uh, Joseph refusing temptation, strong temptations, constant and continual temptations. Does that remind you about Jesus? As soon as he's baptized, he's driven into the wilderness by the Spirit. And Satan comes to him and begins tempting him with strong temptations and continual temptations. He had been fasting for 40 days, and so Satan says, if you're the Son of God, turn those stones over there into bread. And then he says, come with me to the pinnacle of the temple. I'm going to cast yourself off from the pinnacle of this temple, and the angels will catch you. They're not going to let you dash your foot against a stone. They're going to withdraw you gently down to the ground, and all the people there surrounding the temple courts are going to see this, and they're going to be blown away at who you are and your greatness. And then he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a flash of time. And he said, all these things belong to me, but I'll give them to you. If you'll just bow down and worship me. So temptation after temptation after temptation. But Jesus resisted all of them. In fact, over in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, It says that he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He was just like us, but he resisted temptation. Joseph was just a a shadow, just a small picture of the integrity, the perfection of Jesus Christ. There's only been one person who's ever lived who has resisted all temptation. All of us have fallen prey, haven't we? In fact, many times. Many, many times. We've sinned and sinned against God many times. But Jesus Christ was holy, harmless, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. Exalted in the heavens. And the second thing we learn about Joseph in Potiphar's house was that he endured false accusations. Go back to Genesis chapter 39, verse 14. This is what Potiphar's wife said. To her husband, see, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came into me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. So she raised these false accusations. He tried to rape me. And I screamed. And then he fled. He left his garment with me. That's why his garment is still here. So she lied. She made false accusations. And in the life of Jesus Christ, we see the religious leaders making false accusations against him time and time again. In Matthew twenty six fifty nine, it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. So they're looking for false witnesses who would bring false testimony against Jesus. The court case that Jesus endured the night before he was crucified was a kangaroo court. If you research the court case, you'll find out that they violated almost every law that had been put in place that would govern a court. And here's one of them. They brought in these false witnesses. They were looking for false witnesses so that they could have Jesus crucified. And Luke chapter 23, verse 2 and 5 It says, they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. But they kept on insisting, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. So what were the accusations made against Jesus? Let's look at him again. One of them was that he said that he was going to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Well, he did say something like that, didn't he? But he was talking about the temple of his body. He was saying, you destroy me, I'm the temple of God, you destroy me, and in three days I'm going to raise it up again. So what's he talking about? The resurrection. So they misunderstood his intent, and they came against him, saying... This is what he said he was going to do. He was going to desecrate the temple. Well, far from it. Then they said, We found this man misleading our nation. Was that a true or false accusation? It's false. If there was anybody that led the nation towards righteousness, it was Jesus Christ. These religious leaders are misleading the nation. They're the blind leading the blind into the pit. And then they they said, He forbids them to pay taxes to Caesar. Is that true or false? That's false. He said, pay to Caesar. How does it go? Render to Caesar Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is to God. Thank you. (laughs) Instead of saying don't pay taxes to Caesar, he says pay what Caesar is due. Caesar was due taxes, so they were to pay taxes to Caesar. In fact, Jesus himself paid taxes. Remember? He sent him down fishing. Peter caught a fish, he opened up the mouth, and there was the the tax, the money, and he took that and threw it in the copper coins, and they paid their taxes to Caesar. So Jesus never taught that they should not pay taxes to Caesar. Another accusation. He said that he himself is Christ, a king. Did Jesus say that or not say that? He did say that. Yes. But that was true. So how could that be a false accusation? I mean, how could they kill him for saying that he was Christ a king when that was the truth? He was the Messiah. He was the king of Israel. God had sent him for that purpose. And then the final one is that he stirs up the people teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even to this place. Well, it's true that he stirred up the people towards righteousness. He enabled them to be fervent in spirit, to worship their father, to turn from sin. But he didn't stir up the people to revolt against the leaders of Israel, which is, you know, what they were saying that he was doing. This has happened before. (laughs) The guy goes to church over here. He'll he'll take care of it pretty soon. So, they made false accusations against Jesus Christ. It's interesting when you look at the whole crucifixion scene, And and notice what every person at the crucifixion said about Jesus. Pilate said, I find no guilt in him. Pilate's wife said, have nothing to do with that righteous man. Judas said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. The thief on the cross said, this man has done nothing wrong. The centurion said, certainly this man was innocent. Every person you look at, Testified that Jesus had done nothing wrong. He was innocent. He was righteous. He was not guilty of any crime that he had committed. So, Joseph resisted strong temptation. Joseph endured false accusation. Now, let's go over in our mind to this third setting that we see Joseph in, and that's the prison house. Go back with me to uh, Genesis 39. Look at verse 20 so Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. Thank you very much for turning off that hunger <laughs> let's read it again. so Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined and he was there in the jail. the third or no the, the first thing I want you to see about Joseph in the prison house was that he endured suffering unjustly. He was punished unjustly for a crime he didn't commit. And it was difficult suffering. Do you know how long Joseph was in this prison? Anybody know? Okay, how old was he when he was sold as a slave? 17. Later on in the story, when he's released from prison, we're told that he's 30 years old. So from the time that he sold to the time that he's released from prison was 13 years. How long do you suppose it took Potiphar's wife to make this claim that he had tried to rape her? I don't think it would have taken very long. She was attracted to him instantly when he was brought into the house. Potiphar was gone a lot. So it would have happened fairly soon is my guess. So I'm guessing that he was probably in prison about 12 years. Maybe give one year for this whole scene in the beginning to take place. Joseph endured 12 years of prison life where he never saw the light of the sun, where he had no freedoms, where he was treated as a common criminal, even though he had never committed the crime he was accused of. He suffered and he endured punishment unjustly. Doesn't that sound like our Lord? He suffered for sins that were not his own. Unjustly, In one sense it was just justice because God laid our sins upon him, right? And because Jesus was willing to stand in our place and take our sin, there was a sense of justice in that. But unjustly in the sense that he didn't commit the sins that he was being punished for. He was completely innocent of all crime. He was the righteous one. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6. It says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. God has laid the iniquity of us all to fall on him. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, the Bible says. There was the great exchange, the substitute, the sin-bearer, taking the wrath of God for the sins of the world. He suffers unjustly. Now let's take a look at the final setting, which is... Well, we're in the final setting. The prison house, sorry about that. We're in the final setting. So he suffers unjustly for a crime he doesn't commit. But there are two other things that we see taking place there. We see him dwelling in this prison with two other criminals, don't we? a cupbearer and a baker. Does that remind you of anything? Jesus hanging between two thieves, suffering with two criminals. And these criminals, the cupbearer and the baker, come into this prison and they both have dreams. And the cupbearer has a dream and in that dream, he sees this vine with three branches. And those branches bud, and they blossom, and they produce these these grapes, ripe grapes. And in his dream, he sees himself squeezing the juice from those grapes into Pharaoh's cup and giving it into Pharaoh's hand. And he wakes up, and he's confused about this dream. It was so vivid and real, he knows it's got to mean something. And he tells Joseph the dream. And Joseph says, well, I can tell you that dream. This is what it means. The three branches are three days. And in three days, you're going to be restored to your former office. And you're going to put the cup back into Pharaoh's hand. You see, in those days, it was really smart for a king to have a cup bearer. Do you know what his job was? He had to taste the wine before the Pharaoh did. Because everyone's always trying to plot murder schemes against the king, right? So he had to taste (laughs) the, the wine before the Pharaoh tasted it. So if anyone dies, it's going to be the cup bearer. So, for some reason, the pharaoh must have got wind that hey, the cupbearer is doing something wrong, and so he threw him in prison. But Joseph interprets the dream and says in three days you're going to be restored to your office. And that's exactly what happened. It came true. So Joseph pronounced salvation, deliverance, restoration, and blessing to this one criminal who was in prison with him. Do you remember... When Jesus is dying on the cross, and he says to that thief, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Same thing. And there's coming a day, not just when he was dying on the cross, but there's coming a future day when he's also going to pronounce deliverance and salvation and blessing. He's going to say, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's what he's going to say. We're going to hear those words with our own ears one day. If we follow Jesus to the end, if we endure to the end. But there was another criminal there, wasn't there? Not only did Joseph pronounce salvation, he pronounced judgment. To this other criminal. Because the other criminal had a dream and he told Joseph about it. And he said, I had a dream that I had these three baskets on my head filled with white bread. And on the top basket, there were all kinds of baked goods. And birds were swooping down on that top basket. And they were eating all of those dainties out of the top basket. What does that mean, Joseph? And Joseph says, well, those three baskets are also three days. In three days' time, Pharaoh's going to lift your head up and he's going to hang you on a tree and the birds of the air are going to swoop down and eat your flesh off your bones. And that's exactly what happened. Three days later, they hanged him. He must have been convicted for doing something, some treason against Pharaoh. They hanged him and the birds came and ate his flesh off of his skeleton. They're hanging from the tree. So Joseph pronounces not only salvation to one, but judgment to others. And in the same passage I just quoted, Matthew 25, where he pronounces salvation to the sheep, there's also another group of people that are referred to as the goats. And he says to them, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Folks, heaven and hell are real places and every person in this world is going to go to one of those two places. And Jesus is the one who's going to assign the eternal destiny to every man, woman, child, boy and girl who has ever lived. He's going to We're going to hear words from Jesus one day. He's either going to say to us, come blessed of my father or depart from me accursed ones into the eternal fire. And at the end of that passage, Jesus said, these will go away into eternal punishment. It's not temporary punishment, it's eternal. I know a lot of people like to say, Jesus didn't really mean that hell was forever. They say what he really meant was that the effects of it would be forever, because they would be completely destroyed, and so they could never have fellowship with God, and so the effect of the punishment would go on forever. But that's not really true because Jesus said these will go away into eternal life and these will go away into eternal punishment. The word eternal is the same word. It's the same word in the Greek. And so if we're going to say that the punishment is temporary, we have to say that the life in heaven is temporary. And we can't do that. Jesus uses the strongest word that was there in the Greek language to say that this punishment is going to go on never-ending. So Jesus is the one who will assign hell for some and heaven for others. And what does it come down to? It's whether that person became a follower of Christ. They gave their life to Christ. They trusted in Him. They served Him. They gave up their life. Remember, Jesus talked about that. Jesus said you have to be willing to give up your life to find it, to to, to save it. So that's what's involved. Joseph assigns, Joseph pronounces the destination of salvation, the destination of judgment. Likewise, Jesus Christ does the same. Now let's back all of this up and let's look at an overview of what we've seen. God loves Jesus. God is intent on honoring and glorifying his Son. That's what this whole work of redemption is all about. That God would lift up his son. That every knee would bow. Every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. So God loves Jesus. God is intent on honoring Jesus. But what do we see in the brothers? We see them hating Jesus. Envying him. Plotting against him. Stripping him and selling him into slavery. Slavery. What do we see going on in Jesus' life during His earthly ministry? He was refusing temptation. He's being punished for a crime that He did not commit. He's dealing with false accusations. And why is all this going on? Because the Father Father sent the Son on a mission. A dangerous mission. Just as God sent Jesus Christ on a mission to seek and to save that which is lost. That's why he endured this hostility of sinners. That's why he endured their hatred. That's why he endured their plots against his life, them stripping them of his clothes, being laid bare on a cross, dying shame, shamefully naked before the eyes of this watching vulture-like multitude. That's why he was willing to resist temptation. That's why he was living to come down and live a perfect life. That's why he endured our sins on that cross. It was because the Father sent him on a mission to see about the welfare of his brothers. And the whole question that we have to deal with this morning is, what will we do with Jesus Christ? Will we do what Jesus or Joseph's brothers did with Joseph? Will we hate him, reject him, despise him, ignore him, neglect him? Or will we do what Joseph saw his brothers doing in those two dreams that he had? Do you remember what he saw them doing? Bowing down before him. There's only two options. Either you bow down before Jesus Christ of your own volition and worship him as God and follow him, or you will be crushed under the weight of the wrath of God. It's only one of two. Jesus once said that it's like a falling rock. He said there's a falling rock coming and that either you will fall on that rock yourself or that rock will fall on you and grind you to powder. Jesus is the falling rock. Either we fall on Him and are broken upon that rock, we give our lives to that rock, we trust in that rock, or that rock falls on us and it grinds us to powder. Those are the only options there are. And I urge you, if you've never truly made your peace with God, fall on that rock. Bow down to Jesus Christ. Commit your life to Him. And really, there needs to be a decision of your will involved. It involves your mind, emotions, and will. First, you've got to know Jesus is the Son of God crucified for sinners. You know that. But it also involves a commitment of your life to Him. Making a decision. It's true, I have decided to follow Jesus. You've got to make a decision. And if you've never made that decision, make it today. As we go to Him in prayer, cry out to the Lord and tell Him, I'm committing my life to you, Lord Jesus Christ, save me. And those of us who have been saved by Him, follow Him. Keep bowing down to Him. Never stop worshiping this great Son of God. Because you know what? That's what we're going to be doing for the rest of eternity. And it's going to be the delight of our lives. It's never going to get boring. I love Randy Alcorn's books on heaven because they picture such a wonderful future about always getting to know the beauties and excellencies of God where it never becomes boring, where we're always enthralled by Him, learning something new about the greatness and the infinite beauties and attributes of our God as we worship Him forever. Our Lord Jesus, we do bow down right now in our hearts before you. If there's anyone who's never done that, Lord, enable them by grace to bow down and to commit their life to Jesus Christ this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being willing to bear the insults and the mocking, the spitting, the plucking of the beard, that horrible scourging, where your back became hamburger, and then carried the crossbeam up that hill, Calvary, and then laid down and on that plank and had others take nails and drill them through your wrists and your feet and lift it up on that cross until all your bones were out of joint. And it felt like sawdust in your mouth. And you hadn't slept all night long. You hadn't eaten for 24 hours. You were thirsty and you were hungry. And to feel the agony of the weight of your body pulling on those nails and then pushing with your feet up and down to take a breath and then falling back down and when you couldn't stand it any longer to push again. But Lord, that was nothing to the suffering that you felt when your father turned his face away. And you cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, the suffering. And to feel your father's wrath. All you had ever felt up to that time was love. And now you felt wrath being poured upon you. Mountains of wrath. All of our sin being poured upon you. And taking it and bearing it and absorbing it. Hour after hour until finally it had washed on by and you cried out, It is finished. Oh, Lord Jesus. Oh, how we delight in knowing that our sin is gone and how we worship you for taking it and making us new creatures in Jesus Christ. And it's in your glorious name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen.